Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Peter Lehrman and this is Masters in Small Business M&A. This show is an ongoing exploration into the vast and undercovered world of small business M&A, where we interview both the proven and the emerging owners, operators, investors, and advisors whose strategies and methods for transaction success have been put to the test. The show aims to surface the nuanced intricacies, the key ingredients, and the important factors that can improve your decision-making in your own journey in the world of small business M&A. This podcast is produced by Axial, an online platform that makes it easier for business owners and their M&A advisors to find, research, and privately connect with a diverse mix of professional buyers of small businesses. In addition to learning more about Axial, you can find this podcast show notes, edited transcripts, and many other related resources, all for free at Axial.com. Peter Lehrman is the CEO of Axial. All opinions expressed by Peter and podcast guests do not reflect the views or opinions of Axial. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests may have ongoing client relationships with Axial. Hey folks, great to be back on Masters in Small Business M&A. My name is Peter Lehrman. I'm the host of the show. I am really excited to have Troy Berg on the show today. Troy runs Dane Manufacturing. It's a fantastic business story, not just an M&A story. It's as much a business story as anything else, and lots of both organic and inorganic lessons to learn, and really, really just interesting conversation that I'm excited to have. Troy, thank you very much. It's great to have you on, and great to reconnect with you after all these years. Peter, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's just start by get getting clear on what Troy has done with his team over the last little while here. And we can start with maybe just a quick origin story, just day manufacturing. What was it day one and what has it become today? And then we'll go into some of the big, big moments on the journey. Sure. So much like maybe some of your listeners and maybe some of your listeners' friends, it was a very small business and lots of people, I think I've told you before, like to refer to it as a mom and a pop and I don't love that uh, terminology because every husband and wife team that owns a business are a team and they work together hard to make a business and a small business work. And so certainly behind me is a great woman named Michelle, but th- that's what it was. It was a small mom and pop, a stamping company. We, we work with metal, so metal fabrication, manufacturing, that's in the name. And it had an 85-year history when, when Michelle and I acquired it. So the first acquisition was of Dane Manufacturing itself back in 2001, right after the unfortunate 9-11 incident. The banks were kind of skittish. It, it slowed the, the closing, but we got it done. And it was, I always say, 1.x. You know, It was a $1 million company. Sometimes it was 1.2, sometimes it was 1.0, but it was a one, one point something million dollar company with 10 employees. And it had an 85-year-old history and a, and a pretty good reputation. And so we, we set about the process to build it up and make a bigger impact with the employees, the customers, and the community. And so as we started on that journey, we, we had a kind of a hyper-growth organic, I wouldn't say strategy, just a requirement because we would have gotten obliterated had we not gotten bigger. The world was moving fast. And so we grew quickly from 1 million up to six and you know, got a few Inc. 5000 awards for that, that run of growth. And then we entered into the, kind of the next phase. How'd you grow it to six million? 
Yeah, that was that was just pure guts, grit, and and you know, blood, guts, and the beer. As I always like to call it, just getting out in the street and fighting for our share of the market. But we also improved a lot of our processes, acquired a lot of the machinery and some some engineers, and then it was smiling and dialing Peter, and then me on the phone talking to a lot of people who wanted to help us grow and see us grow, so we could you know buy more machines and buy more steel. So we had a lot of good friends that invested in our growth pattern and our growth, our organic growth, so to speak, and just being a good, clean businessman and, and having a lot of kindness towards other people can get you a lot of a lot of help, you know. And I always find the the, the three simple words, can you help me? I guess that's four, right? No, three, can you help me? It worked pretty well. And most people will will do what they can to help you as long as the request isn't too onerous. So we had a lot of help from a lot of a lot of good people. I'll steer some business our way. And then we never lost customers. Never. I didn't lose any customers for 10 years. We had to let a few go and free them up for the market, but they but it was our choice to to say it wasn't a fit anymore. They these were small companies that didn't grow. We were on a fast growth pace. So they became a smaller and smaller share of the business. And when then it got to be, you know, one or two percent of sales, but they were very demanding on the front office. I just said to my team, this isn't working. These folks cost us a lot of time in the front office, waste a lot of staff, valuable staff time, and they really don't have enough sales to to drive that cost any longer. So we would we'd have the breakup conversation. Sorry, it's not you, it's us. We've grown and it's no longer a good fit. Let's help you transition to another company. And you know, we we'd do that over a, a period of months so that it didn't mar mar our reputation or give the prior customer a bad feeling because you know, maybe something changes in their business going forward, or those people leave and go to a bigger company, and then they they come back going, you know, that was a good company to work with. We just weren't a good fit, and I get that we weren't buying enough. You know, there's always that fit fit measurements, you know, for for good companies. So yeah, so we grew, bought some machines. I had a lot of help from the market and the customers, and a lot of our customers grew, right? So they they would give us more business as they grew, and we would help them with their new projects, continue to launch their new products to the market. So Kind of all those things in the in the cookie dough, if you would. Maybe give us a sense for some of the customers back then, and what were you helping? What problems were you solving for them with the original day manufacturing metal business? Sure. So what one customer was an interesting one. It would it would play more on the residential housing construction boom, early two thousand. So from you know from two thousand one to maybe up to two thousand six. You know, right maybe two thousand seven, right before the bubble of the of the housing bubble popping and Eight, eight, nine. You know, the Great Recession of eight and nine. The Home Depot and Lowe's and Menards, those three big home improvement centers. Those guys were expanding nationally at a in a rapid rate. And the story of Home Depot is the easiest one to follow. The Home Depot was, you know, adding a store every four weeks or three weeks or something in America. So you know, they're they're a hundred thousand, one hundred twenty thousand square foot footprint of their big box retail stores. They were just putting one up every four weeks. You know, as they put those new stores up, they had to, of course, fill up the shelves with product. One of our customers' product was in the electrical component area. So when you build a house, if you've ever built a house, you see, or if you've been at the Home Depot or Lowe's, you see these blue boxes, they call them gang boxes, that all your light switches for your house get wired to. And then all the outlets in your house have these blue plastic boxes and they're plastic because they they won't short out with the wire that's getting run into them if the wire comes off the outlet switch or the or the, the light switch on your wall and 
Sometimes they have two nails sticking out of them at a crazy angle, and that's to pound it into the wood stud behind the drywall. And sometimes they have a bracket. Sometimes they, and then in, in your kids, your children's bedrooms or your master bedroom, you might have a light in the middle of the room or a fan with a light, you know, a ceiling fan. There's a, two pieces of metal that would hold that box in place for you to mount that ceiling fan and light or just a light into your, your your kid's bedroom. We made millions of those parts. And so every time Home Depot would start up another store, they'd need another half million units and we'd crank up the stamping presses. And it just, it went like that for six years in a row. We just couldn't make enough or, you know, barely kept up with the demand. And that grew from, that client grew from 100,000 to two and a half million in sales. So they became almost half our sales at six million. And it was pretty scary. And then we worked hard to diversify away from them and to continue to grow with other customers. And that was the early days. That was one story I could share with you. There's a couple others, but that's probably the most, that was the funnest run. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure everybody had a sense for some of the products that you guys were were making back then. And maybe just before we get into the next chapter, the $1 million to $6 million revenue journey for Dane Manufacturing you took over the business, you acquired the business in 2001. What's that time horizon over which you grew grew the business by the initial 6X? Where are we in time now? Sure. So that would have been 2001 to 2005. So that was our first full year in the chair was 02. So 02, 3, 4, 5. So in four years, we we 6 x the company. Yeah, it was a, and the real quick run up was the first year, so 85 years, the company never broke 2 million and uh, many companies never break two and they don't break five. And so we broke two and five, all the thresholds in the small business world, you know, but I always remind people that's the law of small numbers, you know, but it did require a lot of, a lot of change and growth. And I'd say as much change and growth in me as in, as in anything I had to, I had to change my view. So that six X growth was over a four year period. Okay. What's the next big chapter? Yeah, the next big chapter was we, you know, we hovered around that six million, five and a half, six, six and a half, just kind of dithered in between there for a little too long, probably another four or five years. And I said, man, this is this is hard. What's going on? And I realized that I was the problem. Not that I wasn't trying to change and grow and improve as a as a on the personal development side and improve my my customer base and sales skills. It was I was doing too much. So as an entrepreneur, sometimes our desire for you know perfection and or speed or or we kid ourselves thinking we're the only ones that can do a certain job and so you know we end up taking on too much of the too much of the front office or too much of of any one thing decision making process or whatever so everything depended on Troy and I said this is this can't continue so but it, it was sales we weren't getting enough sales process because it was all going through me so I had one internal salesman that I I asked to him to develop and become more of an outside sales focused individual. And then I hired a professional outside salesman. And we very quickly then changed and ran our, our organic growth from 6 million up to the next kind of 12 million, kind of the next doubling, if you will. And that was about, well, we had that four year dither in the middle there where I didn't, you know, I didn't recognize the changes I needed to make. And then we, we ran that 4 million up to, up, or that 6 million up to 12. We also did a, a couple of small acquisitions in that in the middle of there, Peter. One was a million-dollar uh, fabricated hydraulic tank business, and the other one was a million-dollar 
small fastener type product, like a C-type product that went to the appliance industry. So GE Appliance, Wolf Sub-Zero, and Electrolux, a couple of three, the three large appliance makers in the United States. And we would ship to their manufacturing plants. And so for dishwashers and refrigerators and things like that, you set that product on, in your in your cabinets or in your built-ins, and you got to make sure that the product is level. So we made these little tiny feet that were on the bottom of the, the refrigerators and the, and the dishwashers in the millions. They made about 25 million of them a year. And I bought that company and moved it from Rockford, Illinois, up to Wisconsin in 09 to get, our, get my people back to work. So... Was that your first acquisition with Day Manufacturing? So that was the second. The first one was a company called Power PowerGen. It was a hydraulic tank maker that did work with Bosch, Cummins, and some you know some large a company called Hydac out of out of Germany. Some large hydraulic systems manufacturers, and so we would make the tank, the reservoir you you'd fill the oil into the hydraulic oil for all kinds of mobile construction equipment. So you see these big sky tracks that will lift shingles up onto the roof of a house or they'll lift up a bunch of stuff up onto a bridge. JLGs, that's a genie lift group. That's a large, large blue boom lifts and they lift people up onto a bridge to paint it or to work on it. All of those over the dirt construction vehicles, Bobcat was another customer, some fire trucks, that required these mobile hydraulic systems that would lift the boom and lift the the man up in the bucket. And so that reservoir was super critical to that whole system working. And we made those for those three main hydraulic, Bosch, Rex, Roth, Hydac, and and then Cummins, Onan, and people like that. And those those systems then got sold to those, those OEMs that make those vehicles. And so we were an important component to that whole system. And we made those for many, many years. I want to cover the first acquisition. Was this the first acquisition you had made in your professional career? Dane was the first acquisition. Exactly. But separate from Dane, was this the first time you... Okay. So what was that like? I mean, was that straightforward or was that not straightforward? I mean, just did you feel like a fish out of water or did it seem relatively straightforward to you what, what you were doing? You know, that one, both of those acquisitions were pretty straightforward compared to the next one we'll talk about because both of those owners wanted to sell. Both of those owners were decent, really decent humans that were kind of getting to the end of their run, if you will, or kind of winding down to to go to retirement. And I was buying a small part of their companies. In the case of the hydraulic tank maker, they didn't want to do it anymore. And in the case of the, the small leg leveler business, he had three three parts of his business, and that was just one of them that he could generate cash from to to get ready for retirement. So, in in both cases, the owners were wanting to sell, wanted a pretty straightforward transaction, and just wanted cash. And their price, what they wanted for the for the business for the enterprises, was was low to to market value because they weren't running them very well. And so I was able to recognize that early on that we were getting these things for, you know, in M&A terms, you know, one to one and a half times EBITDA base, their EBITDA, not what my EBITDA would be. So our paybacks on them, Peter, were quick and they were low risk. And the bank that I had at the time totally supported that because I did the first one and it worked out really well. In 12 months, we were, we had, we were generating good cash with it and paid back the, the money we'd borrowed you know, into working capital. And the second one, 
the bank supported it because of the timing. You know, '09 we were coming out of the Great Great Recession, and and, and it was a small financial bet, if you will. Four hundred thousand was a small acquisition for a million and a half dollars in sales. I paid four hundred thousand for it, so basically bought the guy's equipment and inventory in both cases. So. How did you find these opportunities? I guess you were pretty connected to them just through the supply chain that you were a part of already. Is that right? Yeah. I've had the privilege of living in a lot of different places in the, in the upper Midwest when I came out of school as an engineer. So I lived in Illinois. I lived in the automotive industry in Detroit for a while. And so I was very comfortable in those industrial cities. And then having been in a lot of manufacturing plants, I could walk into them and kind of size up operations pretty quickly. In the case of both of those companies, I bought I bought from Rockford, Illinois. And if anybody knows the story of Rockford, it's it's kind of a down on your luck, down in the, down in the mouth kind of city. It always ranks, you know, two ninety nine or three hundred out of worst cities to live in in the United States. And I went fishing down there. It's about ninety minutes from Madison, where I, my plants are located. And in both cases, there's a lot of industrial base down there. In both cases, I, I found those one through a friend, and the other through a business broker out in New York City, actually found me the Rockford company. I paid him a commission for finding the business. So that was how I found that one. A little tiny ad in the back of a trade magazine said, you know, business broker called this number. And it was uh, it was a really smart guy. I called this number and that guy was literally had a, you know, an office in the Bronx and Brooklyn maybe. And he was smiling and dialing and, and he found the company four weeks into our acquisition search. And we did the deal and I wrote him a, I wrote him a check. I think he was like 25% of the acquisition costs had to go to him because I had to write a small, yeah. a small one. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Well, it sounds like after a couple relatively straightforward acquisitions, you had one that was more challenging. Let's hear about that one. Yeah. So, so that got us to the, you know, the second doubling from six to 12. And then we were kind of running at 12 for a few years. And same thing. I was working probably a little bit too much at running the operation as well as trying to do some things strategically. So I hired a friend of mine to come in and help me with the operation so that I could be free up some of my time. So running the operation, selling for the operation didn't give me enough time in my day to work on the next strategies, the bigger strategies. And if you run a production company, you get a lot of white noise in your head and it's hard to free your mind up, if you will, go in your office, close the door and, and get your mind free from all the production white noise to, to be able to work on something strategic, right? A lot of interruptions. So I hired Mike. Mike then became our chief, our chief operating officer and he ran production for me. And then he and I created the plan to triple the company in, in, in three years. So we're going to three exit in three years. And part of that plan was to divest of that small acquisition, that second, the second one I did it wasn't core to what we did anymore. And we had grown from six to 12. And that was a good one to help us get out of the mud in the, in the, in the Great Recession. But it was no longer core to what we were doing and where we were heading. And dealing with General Electric, Electrolux, and, and Wolf Sub-Zero, the, the first two were very difficult customers because their, their supply chain management is, is mostly Asian. And they just kind of like to put on the brass knuckles and beat you up. So we said, let's get rid of that business. So we sold, divested of that. And our sales went down by about a million and a half when we sold it. We bought it, it was a million and a half. When we sold it, it was a million and a half. We took that cash, put it into the fabrication side of the business and, and then grew some of our sales organically there. So then we entered into, we joined your 
electronic website, peteraxial.net. We had a small, you had a salesman that worked uh, for you that was very good, called us up and convinced us to join your community. And it was a great decision. So on axial.net, then we were able to utilize all your search tools and criteria and, and go in and really refine our searches down to look for a company that would fit exactly our target, the target we had painted, you know, both revenue size, as well as type of product in, in, in the industrial space that we wanted to enter, as well as, you know, sort very quickly through, you know, hundreds and hundreds of companies. And so during that first three to six months with all your awesome staff at Axial, we were able to get really good. The tools got better. Your search tools were were getting better and better and, and able to refine. You were adding thousands of people to the community every every couple months. We'd get, you know, another thousand people would join, thousand groups rather would join the community, both sellers, buyers, and intermediaries. And during that time we we landed on about a hundred prospects. We'd get the SIMs, we would roll through the confidential information memorandums, and we could decide very quickly, no, 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 and boom. After about 100, we found this company in Spartanburg, South Carolina. It was a division, a subsidiary of a large company in Europe that had financial trouble, and they were selling the subsidiary. Then we started into conversing with the president of that company that had put the company on Axial. He was his job to sell the company for the banks that owned it in Denmark and Norway, and uh, they put the company in receivership. And then we entered into that that acquisition. The process took about two years. We were one year into our three three years, three x doubling, tripling at the time. We were growing nicely organically, and we started to work on this acquisition. It was quite a journey. Some of your staff have interviewed me over the years. There's some great articles out there. Three x three x in three years. You know, from from ten to thirty million. And they captured the story very nicely on, on your website and some of your blogs. But real quickly, the company, Dane Manufacturing, went from 10 million to 20 organically over that the time we set that goal in 2015 to 20, June of 2018. We, we landed some big contract manufacturing work with a public company that grew by 7 million. And, and then at the same time, we were able to get the acquisition done with Danther. I'll tell for the more sophisticated buyers, at the end of the day, it required us to go to two new banks to split up our long-term and short-term lending to two new banks. One of them we found on Axial as well, Crestmark out of out of Michigan. They came in and stepped in as our working capital lender. That was a great fit for us for a year. And then the long-term bank that that wrote the loans for the acquisition. And then we have our, our standard local bank. So we ended up changing our local bank. So it, sorry, there's three banks involved at the time. So the local bank, the, the working capital lender, as well as the, the long-term lender for Danther and Cooling. So, so we went from one bank to three banks. And so there was four banks involved. And then there was two banks in, in Europe as well. So it involves six banks, four legal, four law firms, and 15 SWIFT transactions at the end of the day with $10 million in wire transactions to get banks moving Dane's working capital and Dane's long-term debt and then Danther's long-term debt and then paying the banks in in Europe as well as paying the intermediaries and some other people. So it was very complex, a lot of negotiations. 
the law firm that was the trustee for the banks to make it an arm's length transaction in Europe was the largest law firm in Europe. And this was one small aspect of what this lawyer did every day. His name was Christian. There's a little hockey story there. Christian was a good guy. He liked me, trusted me. And he had six Americans had come to try to buy the, op- buy the operation before me. And he did not like Americans because of the, you know, the rough and tumble M&A world in America. And he, he thought we were, in general, rude people. And, and so I just tried to be kind and friendly and, and consistent and truthful in everything we were doing. And I asked him for his patience and his, his continued grace. And he, he gave me some time. And I think at the end of the day, he realized we were the ones that were going to get the transaction done, even though we were small. We had to go on biweekly calls with him until we were able to get all the financing mechanisms put in place. He, he got the deal done. It was clean. There was no down, down after effect to any of the money we had escrowed for him. He got all that as well. And uh, we became, I would say, I wouldn't say friends, but we became very good acquaintances. So at the time, the Washington Capitals were, were in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And there was a Danish Danishman that was playing for the, the Capitals. And it was the first Danishman that had been in the Stanley Cup playoffs, like in the history of the NHL. And I was sitting up one night watching the game after I got off the hockey rink. And I, I, know, I noticed the time difference between Denmark and America. So it would have been like one o'clock in the morning, my time. And I sent Christian a text message. And it ends up he was working from home that day. And, and he was watching the game at the time. Or he had watched the game. I was watching the game in delay, excuse me. And he had watched the game earlier. So I sent him a text message and he texted me right back. He said, and it was game five. And he was, he said, oh, you're watching a very good game. I won't tell you anything more, you know, and or game six, I guess. It was the last game where, the, where they clinched the Stanley Cup. And so, but we communicated back and forth a little, a couple of the deal points. And he texted me back and he said, Troy, I trust you. We're going to get this done. So that was kind of a fun, a fun exchange at one o'clock in the morning in my, in my living room with him, you know, halfway across. <laughs> so <laughs> we got it done. Have you held on to that acquisition? You haven't divested. That was Dan Therm, correct? Correct. Yes, we've held on to it. I brought in a new president just before we closed, Greg Kay. He's still with me. And then I kept your uh, main engineering mind down there. His name's Rick Schmidt. Super great guy. We, we made Rick the chief technology officer. And uh, Rick's been with the company 18 years now. And I, I see those guys about once a month. I'll go down for a couple of days. Yeah, they've grown from the time that we bought them to this year. They've also doubled in sales. So they went from being like a $9 million a year annual revenue company to $18.5 million will finish this year on the revenue side. Next year will be probably another... Another 10 million in revenue growth next year. We have a lot of things queued up for battery energy storage, renewable energy, transmission and, and distribution for power, a lot of cooling of controls, if you will. So the things that make our world go round, both natural gas and oil pipelines, they got these big drives and the, the controls got to be kept cool in the middle of Oklahoma or Nebraska as they move that natural gas around. Those companies come to us for cooling of those cabinets and those electronics. That's what Dantherm does, as well as the 5G. So everybody that's in the 5G space, we sell to. And then also the industrial space, you know, for electricity generation and distribution. So that's the transmission and distribution of electricity for your Tesla car or, or your, your house to watch TV or listen to this podcast. All that electricity has to be managed and distributed 
And so those controls are very sophisticated and millions and millions in in, uh, electrical control. They're in these small houses and and, uh, shelters, if you will. And so we do some shelter cooling as well. So all air conditioning, all running off power, off the grid. Troy, have you integrated Dantherm in any meaningful way into the existing, sort of pre-existing Dane manufacturing business, or have you largely let them run distinctly? Could you talk a little bit about what you have integrated and what you've let run sort of standalone? Yeah, great question, Peter. Thank you. One of the things we did in uh, during the COVID season was during the pandemic in 2020, we had a strategic goal to improve our our ERP systems, our enterprise resource planning systems for both companies. We were growing very fast and, you know, the pandemic hadn't quite hit. So we set the goal in the fall of 19 for 2020 to upgrade both Dane and Dantherm, put them on the same platform of software, if you will. And so go through an ERP upgrade. And and so we began that process and we powered through it even through the pandemic and got both companies on the same system so that they're fully integrated. And and I have one CFO here in Wisconsin that can look at everything related to production and costs, as well as sales and profitability and and merge our balance sheets on a consolidated basis. So that was a huge integration for us in 20 and 21. Now that's done and behind us and working really well. The second integration was real in deep integration between the two businesses was I sent my, one of my best engineers from Dane Manufacturing down to, to Dantherm. Somebody that had been with me a long time, a very bright engineer, and he's a senior engineer. And he, I said, his name's Ken. I said, Ken, I'm going to ask you to move to South Carolina. It'll be great for your family. It'll be great for you. And I need you to take your talents and redesign a lot of the packaging, the sheet metal that goes around these air conditioners and heat, heat transfer devices. And so that Dane Manufacturing can make the metal and in a more consistent fashion in high volume. And so Ken went down there, repackaged everything, went through about 10 different models. It's got a lot of nice designs for us. And it's all designed with Dane's machinery and processes in mind from you know our punching machines through welding, through powder coating and assembly. And now we have about $2 million worth of metal that leaves here every week to go to South Carolina. So big integration on the sheet metal side. And then we have a few more integrations in regards to some of the internal parts. We make all of the heat exchangers up here for their their heat exchangers. Those are manufactured here. They had a machine that was made in Denmark, came to Spartanburg, South Carolina. They ran it for a while. When we bought the company, we said, hey, that's not what you guys do. You're, you're primarily a, a high-tech assembly company. We're going to take this metal manufacturing line out of here, and we're going to move it up to Wisconsin. So that was Ken's project originally. When you're still at Dane. So we moved that up here. So we, we have that integration as well that we did early in the process in 19. So we have a inline process automated core heat heater core or heat exchange core manufacturing up here. So yeah, lots of integrations, Peter, between the two businesses. And then, but Dantherm does run as a separate entity on its own with its own leadership. And that president reports to me, I'm the CEO, and then president of Dane reports to me also. So I kind of have three direct, direct reports and I let them have autonomy. I let them run that team in Spartanburg. They have a great culture down there, and it's a it's a nice small business that's growing very nicely. And I, everybody that tours that facility, we have a lean Six Sigma black belt that runs production. It's world class now. It's a it's a show place for people in Spartanburg County and the upstate of South Carolina to come visit what you can do to turn around a company and then and then make it a show place. It's got a really nice feel. 
as well as culture and then just and then just state-of-the-art manufacturing processes world-class in every way labor as a percent of sales productivity throughput quality all of our customers come and visit it and they're just blown away at how how well we do what we do that's such a cool story i remember you guys when you made that acquisition i remember that the story that that you've now written was just getting st- you were just getting started, you know, in developing that acquisition and figuring out how to how to mobilize the capabilities down in Spartanburg. It seems like you guys have figured out a lot of things and created another great turnaround story. I want to keep on moving because I want to leave room for just where you know, I want to talk about you at the end of all this and just the journey that you've been on as a leader of Dane and all the things that I'm sure you know, have impacted you and things that you've appreciated and realized about the journey before I let you go. But before we talk about you, you know, this real estate acquisition that we talked about before we pushed record is really, really interesting. You know, a lot of the people who I think tune into the Masters in Small Business podcast are folks that are interested in M&A and acquiring operating companies. We don't talk a lot about real estate transactions as an unlock for operating company growth, but maybe we should. So, because it seems like it's been a very, very big part of the story just in the last couple of years here for Dane. So let's just dive into this one. It's really, really, really worth giving some airtime to. Sounds, if I'm not mistaken, that you know you guys were running the Dane manufacturing operation really at its full potential given the limits of its physical, its physical capabilities. And then this real estate opportunity presented itself and created like a transformational opportunity for you guys to to just totally change the physical plant capacity for Dane, right? And you decided to to take a huge swing and figure out how to do this and obviously to figure out how to do it from a financing perspective in a way that, you know, that managed the risk, but like let, let's hear about this uh, sort of how did the opportunity present itself to begin with and tell us a little bit about just the scale of the opportunity relative to the existing physical footprint that you know that Dane had prior to this. Great stuff, Peter. Lots to unpack there. Let me see if I can do it in a way that would will make sense to your listeners and and to you and to and to see if I can do it justice to give people enough understanding. One of the I say struggles, but one of the challenges you get as you scale a business, you know, through the different thresholds. And the thresholds they're all kind of called out in the in the data. They're called out in a lot of the thresh in, in a lot of the groupings you guys have on Axial.net. And one of the things that the PEs and the head, you know, the, and, the, and the private bankers and a lot of the family offices and and even the, some of the institutional money has figured out is that there's a lot of money being made in manufacturing and there's a lot of money being made in manufacturing in that low mid-market sector. And so we've seen a lot of movement in, 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 of the M&A market into that space that, that I've lived in for 28 years. And so that's good because that, that, that probably gives those smaller businesses, number one, it gives those owners a chance to exit. It gives those smaller businesses a chance to scale with some money, but you know, Many times, private equity and, and family office maybe doesn't want to hold the real estate, but the real estate is a very important component in 
in being efficient with your manufacturing operation, right? So, and if you're scaling and you're, and you're, in my case, it's been hyper growth for a long time. So that's very, very, you know, double digit plus 20% every year. And the bigger you get, the harder that is to kind of, kind of not only maintain, but it requires more and more working capital as well as more and more production capacity to keep that path going. Well, the number one thing you you oftentimes run into is space constraints. And so if you don't think about your space constraint kind of as a as an obstacle and certainly as a limitation, it will smack you square in the face eventually and your production people say, "Hey, I hey boss, hey owner, I got no more rabbits in my hat." I don't have anywhere to put this inventory. It rains or it snows in Wisconsin and we can't set it outside. Can't put it underneath the lean-to because it'll get wet and, and pretty soon we'll have we'll have challenge. Well, let's make a temporary structure outside. So you, you come up with all these creative ways, but eventually you're just like, I got to build a damn building or I got to find another building. Well, so you got two choices. I'm going to build a new building or in addition to my factory. Well, that's a huge distraction for somebody as well as the operation. Second path is I say, well, I'm going to split my operation into two sites. Okay, now you just entered down a very, very slippery slope as far as lost productivity, moving material, people, maybe your front office is in a different location than your second site that you're going to do just manufacturing in only. Now you split your leadership team. You've got all kinds of issues when you split into two locations. They might, Peter, they might be right across the street from each other. They might as well be 20 miles apart because right. now it's two different cultures and two different buildings. And so... So as we grew, we ran right into the space constraints, you know, five different times. We added on to the factory and the old factory. And so it was it was small company to begin with. So the, the, the metric is, you know, one and a half acres with 28,000 square feet when I bought Dane with 10 people, right? So then I acquired the rest of the land on the city block that we have. Now we have three acres. Oh my God, we doubled the land. This is great. And then eventually over five, five is on the facility. Every construction project was a huge distraction for me and the team. We end up with 60,000 square feet of modern manufacturing. We updated all the space, the lighting, the, the, the power, the blah, blah. And now, we have, and now we're full. We're, we, got, we got 10 pounds of stuff in a five-pound bag. And we still can't. And now we're hitting our head on the, on the ability to grow. As we bring in customers, they see this beautiful facility with smiling people and a great culture. And they see inventory in every single corner. They see us moving it five times. It's not efficient. And they go, man, it's too bad. We'd like to give Dane more work, but there's no way if I give him another $2 million worth of work, where the heck are they going to put it? How are they going to flow it? And so we would we do this happy dance when they're in the factory going, well, we've got high velocity. We can do it. You know, and it, it was almost like the munchkins in, in, in Willy Wonka. You know, we can do it, you know. And, the, and, the, and so after a while, they're like, yeah, that's great sales that's great sales stick, Troy, Seth, uh, Mike, Team Dane, but we're not buying it. And so they, big companies don't want risk. And so they would just, to, in order to de-risk, they would say, okay, we're only going to give Dane so much. So they kind of start to cap our growth. Well, then when we get a second plant strategy, we are able to say, well, we have a second plant. We have a second plant. And then they say, oh, okay, well, you come see the second plant. And that's only 50,000 square feet. And it's mostly a paint line. And they're like, ah, that's not really what we were expecting. And it's not super impressive because it's not our facility. We're renting it. So, all right. Then this opportunity presents itself right down the street from where we're currently located in a much bigger community, a, a, a very wealthy community that has a nice industrial park and, and, a, and a very active vi- village government that does a lot of planning. And they have both beautiful 
private homes, as well as you know, good zoning for their industrial parks. And the industrial park has got five stages. It's added on to itself, you know, five times over 20 years. And it's a hyper growth community. And I said, and it's got a lot of workforce. And I said, okay, but a really nice reputation. So I said, okay, good schools, good, good houses, good community, good governance, good police, all of it. So I said, let's go there and move our paint line there and, and begin to get a toehold in this big facility. And let's see what happens. And I bet you if we, if we plan it right and play our cards right, we can own part of it or all of it. And so that was the intent in 2019. We moved our part of our, our second plant operation here. So to give the, the, the listeners a metric then, this is, I told Peter before we got online here, it's one half of a car factory. It's huge operation, huge campus. So it's 50 acres of physical land with 500,000 square feet. Again, remind the listeners we were on three acres with 60,000 square feet. So almost 10x the buildings under roof, as well as the open manufacturing space, as well as what is that, 15x the, the, the available land. The nice part about having the land is you end up with trucks and truck docks and places to set things down outside, your scrap metal, dumpsters, your garbage dumpsters. I just call it site operations. You end up with, you need places to set stuff outside your manufacturing to keep your manufacturing streamlined and lean. And so, you know, pallets come in by the truckloads. You get to scale where you got to have places to set stuff. And so this facility this campus has a ton of land to be able to get. On top of that, you got to have parking for your employee base. Now we're up to 160 employees. They got to have a place to park, including me, you know? So we have that too. We have a lot of parking spots. So really beautiful. So how the acquisition of the real estate came about was we were renters. And in 2020, just before the pandemic, the trustee of the, of the family that owned this land came to us and said, how would you like to buy the facility, the, the main facility, one of the main facilities, buildings that you're in? And I said, his name's Alan. We've become good friends. I said, Alan, I don't want to just buy this building and the land associated with it, which is one third of the space and one third of the land. I want to buy the whole thing, but we're little. You got to help. Can you help me? <laughs> My famous phrase, can you help me? And he goes, well, sure, we can help you. So that's what began a process over the next year to buy buy it in phases, and we did it. We were able to pull, do it with a with, you know with a with a mechanism called land contract, where the family, the wealthy family, that has owned it for sixty years. They, I, I, I tell your listeners in the private ownership as well as maybe even the things they're associated with with their company. Everybody has a certain amount of pride and shiksa and things that they want for themselves, their families. They, they identify with how they dress, where they live, where they send their kids to school, the cars they drive, all of that. Well, when, you, when you're wealthy, like this family is, you have a legacy. And so you care who comes behind you or your dad to buy your properties from you. And this family owns a lot of property. So they care who owns the property next. And they kind of want to steer that if they can. And they want to be associated with a winner and they want to be associated with a company that's, you know, is proud of what they do and has been around a long time. So we had that going for us. And I was able to convince the family and the owners and the trusts that that we would, number one, if they they became the bank in the land contract, that we would, number one, pay them back. And number two, honor their father and their family by, you know, entering into this transaction with us. So once again, it was very much like an acquisition of a private company. It felt like an acquisition. I had to 
give them the vision, talk about my culture. They had us as renters for, for a year and a half. So they saw how well we paid our rent every month, you know, with an ACH on the first of the month. So they had a history with us. And then it really came down to a matter of trust, right? You know, they're going to trust that I'm going to follow through on the deal and I'm going to take over the whole campus. So that's what we did. We entered into a land contract. And then as time went by, the banks came in with permanent financing behind that to pay off the first phase. And that allowed us to move to the second phase. And then so this year, the bank came behind us with a solid mortgage. We paid off the land contract. Then phase two and phase three, I asked, I asked the family and the, and the trustee to put those together in one transaction, not two, so that we could just be get the deal done. So then we did one land contract for the next piece, and that's where we sit. So now we end up with two buildings connected, making up 420,000 square feet. And Dane sits in 180, and the 240 has some, some, some industrial customers as well as industrial customers that rent from us. And, they, and there is... In, for the M&A folks, there's about a 1% to 2% vacancy rate on industrial manufacturing space in America right now. So if you actually want to do an acquisition, you should buy the property with it, where in most cases, you don't want to tie up your capital, buy the real estate. I would tell you, buy the real estate this time and uh, take a little more capital to the cap table and buy the real estate because there's not enough industrial manufacturing space in America anywhere. And that real estate will appreciate with the inflationary rate that we're in right now. So that in and of itself is a good strategy for you. And you could do it in two tiers. You can have a partner on the real estate side or you can and you can be on the cap table. So I would I would strongly consider that. So all right, all that done, we get to this location, we move in 21, we move all of Danes down here, and now we're under one roof again. And so we don't have this two cultures, two roofs. 10 miles away from each other. We have one culture, one roof, one front office. Everyone's here. All the leaders, all the decision-making in one place again. Get all the synergies of all of that together. The engineers are in the same building as the production. It's all good. We start to garner a bunch of customer interest in our space now that all these customers know we got more capacity, both in physical space as well as in machine capacity. We added to the machines as we grew. We came in here. Now we had a place to put those machines. So we we bought more machinery and we ramped it up, Peter. And so we've gone from 20 million to 40 million in the last two years in sales. Before, wow. the, before the pandemic, we were about 25 million. After the pandemic, we had dropped to 15. 15 then went quickly up to 25. And this year will be it. So that kind of scale, that kind of growth is it's painful. <laughs> it's hard. But I tell you what, one thing we don't have is a space constraint anymore. And that is- <laughs> yeah, you don't have that excuse anymore. And, and your customers don't have an easy reason to throttle the amount of business that they give to you anymore. So new set of challenges, but you certainly broke through a capacity ceiling Troy, when, when you bought this business, I mean, I just want to hear a little bit about you and, you know, you're more than 20 years into the journey now. When when you bought Dane Manufacturing for a couple of bucks, it was probably the biggest transaction of your life. If I remember correctly, I think you're, am I not mistaken that your mother helped loan you the money for the original transaction? Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. And yeah, it's the story I, I told at, at your at one of our conferences. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's just it's the story of the love of two women, my wife and my mom. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, we had a small inheritance of from my grandfather when he passed, and then my mom. So fifty thousand. So I needed three hundred thousand to buy Dane up front, and uh, this is two thousand one money now. 
and we had 50 when we started to, when we started to try to buy Dane. And I'll tell some of the listeners maybe that might be, I have a desire to follow in my path. I'm, I'm 57 now. I, I bought the company when I was 37 and uh, with my mom's help. And, uh, and so my mom came in and uh, basically gave me her life savings. And so the amount of stress on me in the first five years to make sure that I, I made sure my mom got her, you know, her monthly payment, I, cause it was a, preferred stock transaction. She got preferred stock. I, I had all the common shares because stock tra- stock sale. Yep. And and mom then eventually got almost mezzanine financing rates. If you recall, I gave mom more money every year, a little bit more money. And same thing. I just ACH the money every on the first of the month. So for 18, 15 years, excuse me, 180 payments, mom got her money on time. And eventually I, she asked, you know, in 2016 to be paid out, just given her, her, age and her situation in life. And I said, sure, mom. So I gave her back her capital and her upfront capital, hundred percent of it. And then I asked my accountants to calculate the interest rate and they came back and they said, 17.85, Troy. And I said, what's that? That's the compounding interest rate you paid your mom for the money that she gave you. I said, oh, great. That's good. You know? And uh, so mom got mezzanine financing rates <laughs> so, and I was happy to do it. I love my mom and she was great. And, and then, you know, my wife obviously stands behind me and supports me in, in every day in, in what I do by taking care of the house and, and making a, a nice environment for you to come for me to come home to with our children. So it's just awesome to thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, you're in 600,000 square feet, you're five or six acquisitions in, you've done land acquisitions, you've done receivership acquisitions. You know, Northern European banks, you've bought businesses where you knew the owners, you bought businesses that you met at arm's length through platforms like Axial. I mean, you've had a long arc to the journey now. I'm just curious, Troy, were, were you, is this what you were hoping for? Is this what you were looking to do when you bought Dane Manufacturing? Were you, had you, did you have a sense for what you wanted out of the next 10, 20 years? Just what, what, what were you imagining back then versus what's happened? Yeah, that's a great, great question. You're, you're going to get deep into my soul on this one. And I, 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 I hope your listeners aren't, don't fall asleep on the, on the answer. I'll make it a short one. My last <laughs> job, my last job was when I worked for another man was like many great entrepreneurs. I, I lost my job. I got fired. For no good reason. The owner was a quintessential entrepreneur that was never there. And he was a finance guy and he had a big business. And I ran his factory for him. And every year I would get a new boss. I'd get a new president and come in. So I reported to the president. President reported to the owner. And the owner would be on site about one day every three months. And usually when he was on site, it was everyone's on pins and needles. And he would kind of rip some faces off. And he'd want more financial performance. And he'd see me and he'd smile and he'd shake my hand and put his arm around me and tell me, keep, keep doing the great job I'm doing for him because I kept making him more and more money in the production area. Out of clear blue, fifth president comes along. He lets me go. You know, he didn't like me day one. I was new school. He was old school. And I didn't do anything unethically or, or insubordinate to him. He just, he just didn't like me, Peter. And sometimes when somebody doesn't like you, they get you out. They get you fired, right? It's an employment at will. Best thing that ever happened to me. So I sat down. I thought hard about like what the hell just happened to me. I didn't see this coming. And I said, how can I make sure this never ha- this feeling? I hate this feeling. I was a really good, I was a good solid cat. And I was working on my master's at Madison at the time, you know, UW, University of Wisconsin. And it was, I was going to school at night and there was a professor there that really impacted me. His name is Dr. Bob Pricer. 
and he taught business 702 and 703, small business management and entrepreneurship. And I was getting my mind soaked every Wednesday night from three to from six o'clock to nine o'clock every night with all this great business knowledge. And so I said, you know what? I think the only way that that, that, does, that doesn't happen to me again, I can't go be the president because my owner fires his president every year. I got to be the owner. So that was my beginning, <laughs> beginning, beginning re- realization that I needed to be the owner. At the time, the plant that I ran for him was about a $100 million company. And I said, well, if David can be you know, a jerk and run this company and have a $100 million business, well, I can be one of the good guys in the world, grow a $100 million business and, 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 and run one and be as profitable. So that was my beginning of my journey, if you will. So I threw a $100 million bogey out there, started my company. Me and in, 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 just like you did off the kitchen table in your apartment in New York City, I got an idea. This is what I'm going to do. And, and so here we are 20, you know, eight years later after I had my design consulting business, then I bought Dane and then you heard the rest of it from there. So I started my first company from scratch. So we're at 55 million this year, yeah, 50, sure. no, sorry, six, just short of 60 million, 59 million this year. With Dan Thurm at 18 and Dane at, at 39 and a half. So we're uh, 60% of the way to the $100 million bogey. And so, yeah, it, it has been like a burning desire deep inside my gut to have, have a $100 plus million company. This owner is still alive. He, he's got houses in four cities. Majority of the time, he spends his time on Marco Island. So I hope in the next two years to make a trip to Marco Island and hang out on the beach. When he comes out at five o'clock to fish for sharks and say hello to him and thank him for letting me go back in, you know, 1995, (laughs) allowing it to happen because he wasn't there at the time. It was the president at the time, Stan, that let me go. I hope you, I hope you fly a drone over, over yourself. I hope you get someone to fly a drone and, and record record that conversation at, at the minimum for your own benefit and maybe for the benefit of those who come after you at Dane Manufacturing or elsewhere, just to give people visibility into just how long the arc of life can be and be able to see something like that with their own eyes. I mean, it's just such a cool story, Troy. I'm so excited to have had a chance to hear the latest chapter that you've written. You know, you're, like you said, you're 65% of the way towards this huge BHAG that you had laid out in your own mind 20 years ago. I don't think anybody would bet against you and your team now that you've 65X'd the original Dane (laughs) manufacturing business after they failed to do so for 85 years. It's really fun to hear the story and to see you and the team continue to write the chapters that you guys are writing. And I'm really excited to catch up with you again in the next few years here. And obviously, it was great for us to be a very small part of the the Troy, the Troy and, and Dane manufacturing story with some of the acquisition sourcing that we did for you. But, you know, that and thank you for the nice words, by the way, obviously about Axial. Obviously, don't want this to ever be a, an advertisement for Axial. Really just want to dive into the lives of entrepreneurs who are buying and building small businesses. And so this has been a great, just a really, really great catch up with you on, on what you've done. From here, Troy, do you feel like, you know, when you think about the next couple of years, particularly given the scale of the real estate acquisition that you made, the ability for you to vertically integrate more and more lines of manufacturing under a single roof, do you feel like you've got a big open-ended sort of organic growth opportunity over the next few years and that's where you want to be focused? Or do you have m and ideas that 
you know, are in your mind for the next 12 to 24 months? Like where, where are you thinking, how are you spending your time? And what are you thinking about when you think about where to go from here? You've got all this huge floor capacity now that you didn't have just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Great question, Peter. Well, thank you for the kind words. The, you know, I, 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 I do want to take a 13 second pause and, and say, I don't operate in a vacuum. I've got a lot of great people that work for me at both companies. I got some great presidents. I got some great staff underneath them. Never underestimate the the power of an A team that works for you. They're all A players. I've 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 helped recruit many of them and handpick many of them, and I and I do get a chance to you know impact their lives a little bit and 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 watch them grow and develop inside my organization. So I you know send them sending them to Vistage and and EA through Vistage as well as you know. Paranet and a few other things, but then then really just you know letting them have autonomy to operate inside the organization and let them let them be their own you know entrepreneurial air entrepreneurial boss in charge of an area if you will right so I, I've got great teams and great people and great employees it doesn't happen without them and then right behind that is my great customers right so it's it's about it's about great employees that take care of great customers and then from their efforts we make some money so thanks for letting me say that that that's that said then you know I, i'm i'm exci- i'm so excited for our future not only with both organizations because they've got those a teams and being able and, and they've got all the right momentum and so in t- inside of dane we call it big mo okay big mo we've got big mo both organizations so there'll certainly be attention i'll have to give to to big mo in both organizations so we don't lose it because it's it still is a good cycle despite what the, the the television wants to tell you and wants the consumers to believe in this political animal year that we have right now i see another good 18 month run before I, before we see the economy go to a little bit more of a softening and I wouldn't call it a recession. I just call it a soft landing in twenty in twenty four and a half. So that's what we see. So we're going to run that hard on the with our current customer base in organic. But I tell you what, I I'm excited because for the first time in twenty plus years, I don't have that that space constraint, right? And so that just frees my mind to go like almost too many ways, Peter. So now my focus with the team is with my strategic leaders has been to say, okay, now we. We've taken care of all these issues and all these scale-up issues, and you've got all this. You've got the staff, you've got the machinery capacity, you've got the space. Now, what do we want to be when we grow up? Is is you know kind of my is kind of what I walk around my office saying to myself. And I, I'll be honest, I don't have the answer. I, I got a little more work to do for that, you know. But I, I think I, I do think in our future it, it is probably rejoining Axial again in twenty three seeing what might be out there from a transaction standpoint. I know that a lot of the PEs and, and some of the non-private owners are getting a little skittish because the markets are really bad and, you know, interest rates are high and all of that. But, we, you know, 6% or 7% interest rate has been, <laughs> been the lending rate that I've had. To, you know, that's still really cheap money in my world, you know, and I've paid 18% before, right? So, if <laughs> yeah if, if we've got if we've got opportunity and certainly we have the track record now as a team having done it many times to acquire another bolt-on brand and company i'd want it to be very similar to Dantherm. i'd want it to come through the axial network i'd want it to be proprietary those are where my mind that's where my mind's at right now and then i'd want it to be a situation where we don't completely upend the, the target i don't know that i want a third site you know and so that's part of the challenge right is to say we're going to make it a bolt-on, Peter, 
and and the real estate's we don't want the real estate, and which means if we're going to move it, then we're going to disrupt a lot of lives. So I got to I got to think through that in a compassionate way, so I don't cause a hundred people to lose their jobs in Toledo, Ohio, unless they were going to lose their jobs anyways. And then I and then I can say, okay, you know, you don't have these jobs in Toledo, Ohio anymore, but but if you want to come to Wisconsin, I'll give you a job. And and shouldn't you want to live in Wisconsin over Ohio anyways? And no, Ohio's a nice place, but you get the point. And so I think if if we can find the right situation or the right acquisition, we would definitely do that again because that's the quickest way for us to take advantage of the open space that we have and the open canvas that we can paint on here. And and I have the right team to be able to to do it, to integrate it, and to you know to, to generate the synergy and impact a hundred more lives. So that's that's where my mind's at right now. I got a little more work to do before I can paint that canvas for you, but that's kind of my initial. Well, Troy, you've you've earned the right to uh, take a breather and uh, look out at the horizon line and spend a little bit of time figuring out how to paint the the next the next chapter for the company. I want to let you go because I know you've got an upcoming meeting. It's just been great to catch up. It's really just every time that I catch up with you, I learn more about the founding story and the nooks and crannies and the details that were a part of it and also get a chance to learn more about how you think about running businesses and and what you aspire to achieve with with Dane. I couldn't wish you more good fortune and success on the way to $100 million. Like I said a few minutes ago, nobody would bet against you at this point. And so look forward to watching you from the sidelines in the next few years here, Troy. And thanks again for giving me the time this morning. Hey, Peter, thanks for having me. And I, I hope uh, some of the stories weren't too long and that some of your listeners garner some some inspiration as well as you know strong tactical ideas on on the way to scale businesses as you go thanks for having me it's great to reconnect with you my friend and thanks for all your help over the years you have a great holiday season thank you Troy. yes sir and you take care if you enjoyed this episode check out axial.com There, you'll find every episode of this podcast, as well as our recorded Axial member roundtables, some downloadable tools for dealmakers, Axial's quarterly league table rankings of top small business acquirers and investment banks, and lots of other useful content that we've created over the course of time. If you're interested in joining Axial as either an acquirer, an owner considering an exit, or as a sell-side M&A advisor, you can get started for free at Axial.com as well. Lastly, if you have ideas for podcast show guests, feel free to reach out to me directly at peter at axial.net. I promise I will respond. Thanks for listening.